Good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, it is good to be among your people this morning, singing praises to you in the name of your Son. It's a wonderful thing now to hold your word in our hands, your word in our own tongue. We are able to read and understand. We pray that as we now open our Bibles, your Holy Spirit would be kind to us. That he, would, that he would help us to understand what He has inspired. That He would unlock our, our minds and our hearts. That we would see the Lord Jesus rightly. That we would prize the good news. That we would see areas of our life that need to be called into delightful conformity to the image of Christ and His mission. And that as we leave this place, we would, with joyful submission, follow Christ anew. This is a tall order. And we pray for it with boldness because we believe that you're a good God and we believe that Christ is a strong Savior. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. When I was waiting tables in college, we had a manager who would occasionally cry out, Where's the urgency? Let's have some urgency. Now, he, he was not really looking for an emotion. What he wanted was action. Urgency does move one to action, and the action that he wanted was for us to deliver oversized pieces of ice cream cake to upper middle class suburbanites, as if it were a life and death situation. That's what he wanted. The problem was that there were some key ingredients for urgency that were missing from the context. To feel a sense of urgency, there has to be one of a few things, at least one, you, you've, you, you've got to have a strong commitment to an ideal or you've got to have a really small window of opportunity to do something of critical importance or you need a mixture of fear and love, fear of losing something or someone that you love. I mean, we, were, we were happy to hustle that cake out to table 27 or wherever, but there was going to be no true urgency because... The underlying motivations were missing. Now, on the other hand, most of us have felt urgency at some point in our lives. I mean, what do you do when your child is having a severe asthma attack, gasping for breath? Well, you, you feel a sense of urgency. It moves you to act. You get them to the hospital. Why? Because there's this underlying thing going on in your heart. You, you love them and don't want them to suffer. You fear losing them. So there's urgency. What, what about when your, your basement is filling up with, with water? 
What do you do? You do everything you can to address that immediately because you fear losing something that you have invested in. What about when you find out that the deadline for, for applying for a full-ride scholarship is tomorrow? Well, you, you stop everything and you get that thing done. Why? Because you've got this tiny window of opportunity to do something of critical importance. Or what if you see a horrific injustice taking place right before your eyes? Well, you move to address that with urgency. Why? Because you're deeply committed to this ideal that there is right and wrong and justice must be brought to bear on both of those things. Now, where there is urgency, there, there's some kind of underlying motivation. Where there is no urgency, those things are missing. And in the passage that we're about to read, there's a large group of people who display great urgency to bring people to Jesus. There is something underlying that urgency that moves them to act. And we'll see what that is. We'll also consider this morning, if, if we are not exhibiting similar urgency, what underlying element is missing in our minds and hearts? Those who believe in Jesus and love the lost, they feel a sense of urgency to bring people to Him. That's what we'll find as we read Mark 6, beginning in verse 53. I invite you to stand with me and we'll read this last little section of of Mark 6. Mark 6, beginning in verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized Him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard He was. And wherever He came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored Him that they might touch even the fringe of His garment. And as many as touched it were made well. You may be seated. Now in chapters 4-8 through here in Mark, the evangelist has been driving home two points. The first of those is that Jesus is worthy of faith. You can trust Jesus. The second point he's been driving home is that the life of discipleship is a life of faith. Once again, we, we find Mark making those, those two points. So we're going to get a positive example of faith, showing us what faith looks like. And then once again, we're going to be shown that Jesus is worthy of that faith. So the first of those two emphases could be expressed in this way. This is in your notes. Those who know Jesus urgently bring others to Him. Those who know Jesus urgently bring others to Him. Verse 53 again, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized Him. Now whether they had seen Jesus before as He's traveling around Galilee, or they had just heard about Him and they put two and two together, we don't know. Whatever the case is, they saw Him, they know that's Jesus. So they recognize Him. But the text indicates, the context indicates, they recognize Him in a deeper sense as well. They don't just recognize a guy and are able to label Him, but they understand who and what Jesus is. How do we know that? 
We know that because Mark has set us up to know that. He's set us up to understand that these are people who believe in Jesus. These are people of faith. And he's prepared us for that by passages that he has already given to us in his gospel. So you remember the hemorrhaging woman in chapter 5. The hemorrhaging woman in chapter 5. The placement of that story and its depiction of her as an exemplar of faith. Remember what Jesus said to that woman. He said, your faith has made you well. That story prepares us to understand this crowd as exhibiting the same faith. Because they react, they, they do something that's very similar to her. Another clue. Where else have we seen someone being carried on a bed? Find that back in chapter 2. People carry a paralytic on his bed. and They lower him through the roof of the house where Jesus is teaching. Jesus commended their faith as well. So just as the men in chapter 2 were desperate to get their friend to Jesus, and so they carried him in on a bed, and just as the woman in chapter 5, she was desperate to get to Jesus so that she might only touch his garment, so also Mark has shown that in just the same way, so this crowd is desperate. They're doing the same things. And implied here then is that the people of Gennesaret have that same great faith of the men in chapter 2 and of the woman in chapter 5. These people, they recognize Jesus in the sense that they, they believe in who He is. They've got faith in Him. And this passage not only mirrors that picture of faith in chapter 5, the, 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 the woman, the, the hemorrhaging woman, but... It also carries the ball forward a bit in that it helps us to see more of what faith does. It is an axiom of the New Testament that faith does things. Faith is not a work, but faith works. That is, faith bears fruit. It it issues forth in a certain brand of behavior, and that, that, that behavior testifies to the reality of that inward faith. So if we think again back to chapter 2, that the men's inner faith, their belief that Jesus is who He says He is, does what He says He does, that issued forth in outward behavior. They snatch their friend up, they carry him to Jesus, they lower him through the ceiling. The woman's faith in chapter 5, the hemorrhaging woman that issued forth in outward behavior, she pursued Jesus, she, she, she wedged her way through that crowd so that she could just touch Him. Now here in chapter 6, we see that same faith issuing forth in outward behavior on behalf of others. So look at at verse 55 again. So the people immediately recognized him, verse 55, and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. Now I wonder... Anybody here this morning have an ache or a pain that you could do without? Man, if you could just snap your fingers and get rid of that thing, that would be fantastic, right? What about maybe something more than an ache or a pain? Or how many of us have a loved one that's just got something horrible wrong with them physically? Maybe it's it's an an autoimmune disorder or or maybe cancer or, or diabetes, heart disease. I mean, If an opportunity presented itself for you to get rid of that malady for your loved one, wouldn't you jump at that chance? I mean, wouldn't you just immediately avail yourself of that opportunity that presents itself? Well, Jesus 
has firmly established a reputation there in Galilee as the cure for whatever ails you. I mean, he, he has never been stumped. The, the demonized person who comes to Jesus leaves formerly demonized. Do you remember, remember the, the, the Gerasene demoniac back in chapter 5? After encountering, after encountering Jesus, the text to, refers to him as the man who had been demonized. And if you're a paralytic, you come away from Jesus being formerly paralyzed. Even if death is what ails you. you remember, remember Jairus' daughter in chapter 5. She was dead. You, you encounter Jesus, you come away formerly dead. He's, he is so crazy powerful that people who touch His garment come away changed. And just as important, Jesus has a reputation as one eager to do these things. I mean, th- this is what He loves to do. Remember the leper in chapter 1. That leper, no, nobody touches a leper. Everybody wants nothing to do with the leper. And so this man comes to Jesus, believing that Jesus is different, comes to Him, falls down before Him. He says, if you're willing, if you want to, you can make me clean. What did Jesus do? He did what He didn't have to, reached out and touched Him and said, I want to be clean. Unlimited power married to unlimited compassion. He can and He wants to. The crowd, they believe this about Jesus and so they act. Verse 55 reads, they ran about the whole region. Now what what were they so urgent to do? That they want to bring others wherever Jesus is. They they, they begin thinking about their, their friend, their loved one, their family member whose opportunity for a changed life just arrived in the person of Jesus when that boat was anchored on the shore at Gennesaret. And this indicates that there are, there are these two underlying things in the hearts of these people contributing to this urgency to act. They believe in Jesus and they love these sick people in their lives. And so they run. How do we know that they love the sick people? How do we know that? Because they, they run. They snatch them up. They carry them across the countryside to Jesus. This is strenuous work. I mean, can, you, can you imagine how word is spreading across the region? It's not just the one town of Gennesaret, but, but, but other villages all across the region. People are running about looking for people. Get your sick to Jesus. He's here and He'll help us. I mean, it's urgent work and it's strenuous work. Born of faith and love. Faith truly knowing and believing Jesus is who He says He is. He does what He says He does. And love. Understanding the dire situation of others and caring about it. Those two things move them to urgently and strenuously bring others to Him. Now, to this point in Mark, there have been a handful of mentions of Jesus preaching the good news began back in 114 where Jesus said the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel 
And so this is understood to be, this is the message that, that Jesus preaches wherever He goes. So he, he preaches that, and then everywhere He goes we have healings and exorcisms, and those two things go together. They're related. Jesus preaches the good news, and then He shows the good news. The healings and the exorcisms, they are a picture of the war that Jesus has come to win. He's brought the kingdom to, the, to this earth to destroy the domain of darkness. You see, oppression, oppression by the devil and the existence of physical illness, they are consequences of man's original rebellion against God. Back in the very beginning, man was created to enjoy a special relationship with the Creator as the pinnacle of His creation, to walk in fellowship with Him, to walk in loving submission to Him. But Adam, very first man, he rejected his Creator God. And as a result of that, he entered the domain of darkness under the influence of the devil. And when he did that, every part of his being, fell. His mind, his affections, his will, his body. And so, the oppression of the devil is man's temporal lot. And physical infirmity is his temporal lot. But these two things, oppression by the devil, physical infirmity, they are symptoms of a sickness that is deeper and more grievous than leprosy and paralysis There is a disease that man has at the core of his being. It's a disease of the soul. We have inherently rebellious hearts. Adam wasn't the only rebel. We have all followed him in his footsteps, rebelling against God from the womb. You know, when we we go to school, there are things that we have to be taught. The three R's. You've got to be taught those things. You don't know those intuitively. No one has to teach anybody to lie, cheat, steal, gossip, doubt, divide, boast, lust, covet, or hate. We do those things as naturally as we breathe. It's our natural bent. And so deep is this heart of rebellion toward God that even though that's our natural bent, it ultimately makes us miserable. What we love makes us miserable. Sin is the cause of every misery on earth. Some some misery is inflicted on us by the sin of others. Much of the misery that we endure is inflicted by our own sin. The devil compounds this by tempting us to do what we already want to do. And then when we give in to that temptation, He then comes around on the back, on the back end and condemns us for it, gleefully moving us to heap judgment on top of our own heads, which brings us to the, the worst damage that sin does to us, and that is that it eternally separates us from God. It makes us the objects of His holy wrath. That, that holy wrath which is our just due for our rebellion against a perfect, holy, and kind God, that holy wrath is going to be far worse than any suffering that we endure on earth. Now, nobody would argue that that life on this earth is a walk in the park. I mean, we, 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 we discussed a few, few weeks ago in the message that life is hard. 
There's trouble everywhere you look, suffering everywhere you look. But even at that, the grace of God towards sinners characterizes this life. God is constantly withholding His wrath from sinful men in this life. God is constantly restraining the evil of men in this life. In this life, we suffer the wrath of other men. In the next life, after the judgment that we deserve, we will suffer the wrath of Almighty God. And the New Testament goes to great lengths to depict depict the horror of that wrath. Not out of some fascination with the macabre, but out of kindness to sinners, to warn them of what is to come. And I do find it interesting and informative that most of the descriptions of hell that we have come from the mouth of Jesus Himself. He tells us these things because He's kind. A lake of fire where the flame never dies. Outer darkness, place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. Interpreters have debated over the centuries about whether or not these things are to be interpreted literally or as Jesus and the other biblical authors are they using metaphorical language. Will people really burn in hell for all eternity? Will they really burn? Well, If if it is metaphorical language, that ought not comfort us. We only appeal to analogy when straightforward language cannot capture reality. If the fire that Jesus talks about is metaphorical, the metaphorical language is used because the reality is worse than literal language can convey. And it is forever, this wrath. This is is quite the predicament. I mean, we think we have problems in this life. Our real problem is an eternal one. Romans 1.32 teaches that though we know about this wrath, though we know it, we not only continue down the road of rebellion to destruction, but we cheer others on as they do the same. So leprosy and, and paralysis and demonic oppression, they are but surface level indications. that Something is dead wrong with a man at the level of his soul, and he is helpless to change it himself. Enter Jesus. He comes to make everything right. Not only to to cast demons out of the demonized, not only to, to make lepers clean and to give sight to the blind, but to deal with the root problem that has given rise to those miseries. He comes to deal with sin. He comes to remove sin. And by dealing with sin... He reconciles us to God so that we're no longer children of wrath, but we are children of a heavenly Father. The the healings, the exorcisms that that Jesus does in in the Gospels, they're, they're like visual hints that Jesus is here to take care of sin. Jesus kills sin and darkness and its effects. How does He do that? At this point in Mark, it's not abundantly clear. There have been hints. It's going to become clearer and clearer as we go through in Mark 10. It's this clear. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. 
The mechanism by which Jesus rids man of sin is that the Father places the sin of man upon Christ and kills it in Him, punishes it in Christ. Isaiah 53, 5 reads, But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus lived sinlessly before God in order to qualify Himself to be that perfect, spotless sacrifice for sins. He lived perfectly in order to qualify Himself to die for the sins of man in order that He might free man from that sin and free man, man from sin's consequences. He rose from the dead three days later so that everyone who repents and believes in Him will be given His life. They'll be freed from sin and death and they'll be reconciled to God. Every time Jesus heals someone, He is visually preaching what He verbally preaches, and that is this, I free people from sin and death, repent and believe, turn and trust in Me. All who do so will be free. The sin-stained who come to Jesus... They become formerly sin-stained. And more than that, all who come to Christ in repentance and faith, they're not only freed from their sin, but they're clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. The sinner becomes a saint. No, No one who comes to Jesus in faith leaves unchanged. So I ask you this morning, who do you know enslaved by various passions, trapped under the weight of sin? Who do you know living in darkness, loving the darkness, and being eaten alive by the darkness? Who who do you know whose life has been and is being ravaged by sin? Do you contemplate their plight Their, 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 their present circumstances under the weight and condemnation of sin, their eternity under the wrath of God? Do you love them? And do you believe that Jesus is who He says He is, who does what He says He does? If so, what will you be moved to do? the urgent and strenuous work of bringing them to Jesus. Now, I'm going to suggest this morning two ways, two main ways that we do the urgent and strenuous work of bringing people to Jesus. These are not in your notes. The first is putting Christ in front of them. Putting Christ in front of them. And there are two components of that. There are two components to putting Christ in front of the lost. One is living like Him. One is living like Him. If we really believe that Jesus is the only hope for sinners, and if we love the lost, we are going to urgently commend the good news 
by living a life that demonstrates the truth of the good news. The, the good news says Jesus takes sinners, transforms them into saints. So by the way that we love the lost and others, the way that we talk to them, the, the way that we respond to adversity as they watch, however imperfectly, we're going to show them Jesus really does transform people. The good news is true. And the New Testament is, is not shy about this. This is strenuous. It requires Holy Spirit-empowered striving, which is so often instructed in the New Testament. Let me give you just two examples in the New Testament. Talking about the hard work of sanctification. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 2 Peter 1, 5-7 For this very reason, make every effort, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. 2 Timothy 2.22 Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. There is a lot of strenuous language in the New Testament pertaining to our growth in Christ-likeness. And one function of that growth in Christ-likeness, as Jesus indicates in Matthew 5 and as Paul indicates in Titus 1 and 2, is that that growth in Christ-likeness preaches the good news Visually, it tells people what we have said about Jesus is actually true. He does transform sinners into saints. A second component of putting Jesus in front of people is speaking of Him. Speaking of Him. So we're going to live like Him and we're going to speak of Him. When the opportunity presents itself, we're going to be dropping gospel threads into conversations. When the, when the opportunity presents itself, we're going to share the whole gospel with that person. We're going to be so convinced that Jesus is the only cure for sin that with urgency we will speak of Him every chance we get. We'll find it hard to pass by opportunities. Now, there, there are two ways of doing the urgent work, urgent and strenuous work of bringing others to Jesus. The first is to put Jesus in front of the lost. There's another way. Let's look at verse 56. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that, that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. Now think about this for just a second. I mean, it's crazy. In every, in every town in the region, they hear Jesus is coming, and so they, they carry people to wherever He's going to be. And you, you, you got sick people just laying out everywhere. And when Jesus comes, they begin to implore Him to intercede on behalf of this, this loved one, this family member, this friend. Hey, can, can He just touch the fringe of your garment? Can He just touch you, please? The, the, the word implore that's used in this text is repeatedly translated beg in chapter 5. So, so they, don't just, they don't just carry the people and, and put the people where Jesus is going to be, but they, they, they put them in front, of, in front of Jesus and they beg. They beg Him. Please, please do something. 
And, and if we would do the urgent and strenuous work of bringing people to Jesus, we ought not only put Jesus in front of the people, but secondly, we ought to put the people in front of Jesus. We ought to put people in front of Jesus. And what I mean by that is put them in front of Him in prayer. Earnestly, fervently, persistently praying that He would have mercy on them, save their souls. Again, what, what, what is it that would move us to do this? Two things. Love for that lost person and belief in Christ. We believe that He is who He says He is. And He does what He says He does. This thing of, of putting others in front of Christ in prayer, imploring Him to save their souls. We're seeking to make this a point of emphasis in our monthly prayer gatherings, praying for lost souls. So if, if you are burdened for someone, you've been sowing seeds with them, and you've been praying that the Lord would save them, and you would like for your brothers and sisters here at Providence to come alongside you and pray along with you for that person, submit that person's name on our prayer portal at, at our website. There's not a link, but you have to put this address in, providencebiblefellowship.com slash prayer. It's just our website slash prayer. Put that name in there. Pr- prayer is a means by which God does His work among men. I mean, do we believe this? It's what the Bible teaches. The last half of, of James 5 testifies to the great power of prayer. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it's working. And then he gives an example. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And what he means by that is, Elijah wasn't special. He's just like you and me. And, and when he prayed, crazy things happened. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again. Heaven gave rain. The earth bore its fruit. Pray, pray, pray. Do you love that lost person? Can you say you have labored in prayer for them? We, we labor over all kinds of stuff, don't we? Let's be honest. We labor over our houses. We labor over our cars. Labor over our, our finances. We labor maintaining stuff. Do we labor for souls on our knees? Oh, Lord, please save this person. Please bring manifold circumstances, influences into their life to bring them to a knowledge of sin, grief over that sin, hatred for that sin, desperation for reconciliation to you. Please pull back the veil so that they will see all of these things, that they'll see the love and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might find Him to be the pearl of great price, that they would leave all in order to have Him. Please, Please give them repentance and faith. And Lord, would you please use me? Please. Beg. Have you, have you labored in prayer to keep that soul in front of Jesus? The people of Gennesaret, man, they knew who Jesus was. And they loved the sick around them. And so, they brought others to Him. The question for us is, do we know Jesus. We really believe He is who He says He is. He does what He says He does. And do we love the people around us? According to this text, what would be one indication that we do? We will be urgently bringing them to Him. Now, this whole scene here, 
the end of chapter 6, serves to support the second theme, which is a major idea that Mark wants to convey to us throughout the book, and that is that Jesus saves all who come to Him in faith. Jesus saves all who come to Him in faith. Look Look at the rest of verse 56. And as many as touched it were made well. Again, that story of the hemorrhaging woman in in chapter 5 prepares us to understand this. Because we've been through that passage in chapter 5. We know it's not simply anybody who touches Jesus is made well. In chapter 5, Mark was careful to note there's all kinds of people pressing in on Him and nothing happened to them. It's the touch of faith that heals. We're intended to make that connection here. These people are touching Christ in faith. They believe. They believe if they touch Him, they will be healed. And that is the reason for the simple request. Let them only touch the fringe of your garment. They're coming in faith. They're touching in faith. And such is the great power of Christ that all who do so are made well. No one goes away disappointed. No, no, nobody finds Jesus incapable of healing. We never find that. His power is never used up. He is an infinite well of power and compassion. Now, likewise, all those who come to Christ, turning from their sin and trusting in Him alone to reconcile them to God, they are saved from their sin, every one of them. They're reconciled to the Father. They're adopted by Him, and they're made co-heirs with Christ forever. Every single one of them. This passage says, says to us, Look at the saving power of Jesus. Hordes of people come and touch only the fringe of His garment, and they are changed. Jesus can be trusted. That must be a hallmark of our language as we interact with these lost people that we love. Jesus can be trusted. He can be trusted. If you will turn from your sin and trust in Him alone to save you, He will He will. He transforms people. He will do it. He saves all that come to Him in faith. Now, Some of us, some of us this morning are perhaps recognizing in our own minds, hearts, and lives a lack of urgency in ourselves. And so, we're realizing then that there must be an underlying Weakness of faith and or lack of love. So what, what do we do in that situation? What do we do? I'll give you a few suggestions. A few suggestions. Three. First of all, for a time, eliminate as many unnecessary distractions as possible. I'm thinking things like TV, Facebook, other social media. Not that those things are inherently wrong, but Make time and eliminate distractions so that you can devote yourself to mining the Scriptures for two things. First, passages about the Gospel. Second, passages about the love of Christ. Frequently those passages are going to be the same, but sometimes they're not. Passages about the Gospel, passages about the love of Christ. Find those passages, take them apart, meditate on them, digest them, pray them, dive into them, and just sit there and soak. And what we're looking for is the heart of Christ. 
We're looking for the character of Christ. We're looking for the redemptive work of Jesus there. And what we want to do is personalize those things. That Jesus did this for me. And Jesus is this toward me. The magnetism of the character and love and work of Christ is going to be a far greater impetus to change than is shame about failure in the past. You keep that in mind, okay? So we've all failed in this area. We have all failed to be urgent about bringing others to Jesus. We're not going to just stand and look at, look at those failures and think, I need to do better, I need to do better. Shame on me, shame on me, shame on me. What we do with failure in the past is we repent, seek forgiveness, and then we turn toward Jesus. And that's what I'm talking about in this first step. We're going to look for the gospel, we're going to look for Jesus, and we are going to pray that the Lord will help us to be enamored with Him. Second, wear yourself out praying for those two underlying motivations. Lord, I I believe. Help my unbelief. I know these things are true. Please work them further, deeper, more broadly into my thinking, my heart. Lord, I want to love as you do. Please help me to see the lost the way that you do and love them. Make it a matter of concerted prayer. The third thing is act. Act. What what I mean by that is we're not going to wait for growth in faith or growth in love but we're going to start exercising these muscles by doing what we've already talked about. We're going to go ahead and start exercising the muscles of putting Jesus in front of people and putting people in front of Jesus. Living like Him and speaking of Him and wearing ourselves out praying for their souls. We're going to do those things. And as we're doing those things, we are trusting that as we do them, the Lord will use those, those actions, those, that exercise of those muscles. He's going to use those to cause us to grow in, in faith and love. As, as we close, I would just uh, like for us to, to think about two groups of people. Two groups of people. First of all, who were those who did the urgent and strenuous work of putting Jesus in front of you and you in front of Jesus? Could be one person, but likely it was a number of people. Who, who are they? Why would they do that? Two reasons. They believed Jesus is who He says He is. He does what He says He does. And two They loved you. I thank God for my parents and my Uncle Pat, the primary people that he used to bring me to himself. They believed in Jesus. They loved me. And so they put Jesus in front of of me and they put me in front of Jesus. Who, who, Who are those people in your life? Praise him for those people. Thank him for those people. Second group of people to think about this morning. Who are you bringing? What are their names? You believe in Jesus. You love people. Who are you bringing? Who are you putting Christ in front of and who are you putting in front of Christ? What what a magnificent thing it would be for Providence Bible Fellowship to become a proverbial Guinnessarit. Everyone among us, because of strong faith in Christ and deep love for others, 
just as a culture among us, we're wearing ourselves out, bringing them to Jesus. What, what an amazing thing if our prayer gatherings each month just swelled both in attendance and in the number of names of souls being lifted up to Him for their deliverance. Oh, that, that we would give ourselves to the urgent and strenuous work of bringing others to Him. I'm going to close this in prayer now, and after that we will observe a, a moment of, of silence during that time. I'd encourage you to think through those things. What, what in particular is it that Jesus would have you to do with what you have heard this morning? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you, first of all, for the, for the extraordinary power and compassion of Jesus Christ. How we have become beneficiaries of it. How we have been saved from our sins, Lord. We pray, Lord, that, that for each of us now who has recognized a failure to walk as he walks, to, to, to believe in his power and to love people to the extent that we you're urgent to bring others to Him. Those of us who understand that we have failed in this, Lord, please grant us to repent of these things, to seek forgiveness. And having done that, to then look toward Christ. See again His great power, His magnificent compassion, and be moved by who He is to join Him in this work. Lord, please, please grant us great great eager hearts to live like Jesus, to speak of Him, and to pray to You in His name that others might know You. Pray, Father, that You would transform us in these ways, that You would grant Providence Bible Fellowship to be like the people of Gennesaret, doing the urgent and strenuous work of bringing others to Jesus. We ask in His strong and compassionate name. Amen.